You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this day um, when we remember the great freedoms that we have. And I thank you especially, Lord, um, for the freedom in this country to worship as, uh, as we choose. Um, we forget what a great gift that is. Um, but I know that in so many parts of the world that is not possible. So I thank you for, um, for this nation and for all the freedoms that we enjoy. May we um, care for them and most of all remember that you are the giver of, um, of all freedom. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bless us as we study your word to us now. May it take root in our hearts and bring forth the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. I ask all of this uh, in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. All right. Well, I've got today and next Sunday, so um, I'm trying to basically cram in what is essentially a six-month class every week uh, into four weeks, so, um, so we'll, we'll get as far as we can. Um, but last week we, we were looking at um, the different uh, topography and um, the different types of soils and how all of that plays into life in the Holy Land. And of course, um, God from the very beginning, because he created it all, um, created it to bring forth food for eating so that his people would not starve to death. And so we read in Deuteronomy 8, which is really one of the really significant chapters in, um, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy 8 is actually one of the chapters that Jesus quotes when he's fighting the devil um, and his 40 days in the wilderness. Um, but Deuteronomy 8, 7, 8, this is God's promise to his people. Uh, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills. And we looked at the water sources last week. A land of wheat and barley, of vines, fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. And so that then ties in also with his promise that he was bringing his people into the land of milk and honey. And so with that promise, we see the milk, we're talking about flocks of sheep and goats, very few cattle. Um, and so milk and wool from your sheep and goats, and then the honey, which is cultivated land. And so this is really what you see in the Holy Land. You see um, what um, uh, Gertrude Bell called um, the, the, the desert and the sown. And so your desert areas are your areas where you have your flocks, and the sown areas are the, land, the areas where you cultivate. And both of those are um, part of the makeup of this tiny but important land. And so um, here you see a wheat field up on the Benjamin Plateau north of Jerusalem. Um, gorgeous wheat in the summer, almost as far as the eye can see. And then um, to the west of Jerusalem, you've got the terraced hillsides 
um, terracing starts to come become a technology. I know we don't think of terracing as technology, but it is. The terracing technology and the idea um, we start seeing in the Holy Land in the Iron Age. So this is Bible, this is Hebrew Bible period, um, because it helps you retain water on sloped ground. And so the terracing where still today um, they grow things. Um, and so you see them growing your vines. And um, just really quickly, something that I think is wonderful, um, that in, uh, in, even in modern Judaism, there are two, um, you have meal blessings, just like we do. Well, there's one that's generic, but they have two special blessings in, um, in, in Judaism today that are particular. One is for bread and one is for wine. Um, very important. Um, it comes, of course, into Passover meals. And then it comes weekly, this special blessing over bread and wine every week for the Shabbat meal on Friday night to begin your day of Shabbat. And so the importance of bread and wine in the life of the people of Israel, in the life of God's people, um, which of course then come to us um, through Eucharist, which um, I think is something really special. Um, and then the honey, um, when we think of honey, we mostly think of bee honey. Um, I got to spend the morning yesterday helping with a beekeeper from the parish, which was just the best. <laughs> so just the best. And um, I'm hoping to start my hives next summer. Anyway, that's a, a whole nother story. Don't get me started or we'll just talk about bees all day. But um, mostly when it talks about honey in the Bible, it's actually honey that's made from dates. And again, what we see here is how this land, which at first blush appears so barren and desert, um, actually provides everything that the people need. So you've got bread, you've got wine, um, you've got honey to make things sweet. Um, however, I just read an article in an archeological magazine um, about a month ago that they have also found beehives in Israel, Iron Age beehives, which is very interesting. Um, and so we do know that there is some bee honey. Does anybody remember, probably uh, there's a couple references to bee honey in the Bible, but there's one that's particularly interesting. Samson. Right, Samson in the carcass of a dead lion. Yeah, which is really problematic for Samson. Um, because he was, he was a Nazarite, so he wasn't supposed to touch dead bodies. So not only has he touched a dead body, the lion, but then he kind of ate honey out of it, which just seems a little gross. But anyway, so there you go. Samson had issues. So um, anyway, um, so this, all of this is part um, of, of this land that God has brought um, brought his people to. And I, I just really love how when you drive around, you see pomegranate trees, you see date trees, you see the fields sown. Um, and there's a whole field of study actually today that it's really, um, it's, it is food archeology span and um, 
beverage archaeology. So there's, um, which I would love to do, actually. I'm a terrible cook, but this makes me, this always excites me. There's actually a whole group of archaeologists who will get scrapings from inside old pots. Like, I mean, you're thinking scrapings out of 3,000 year old pots and they're then able to chemically analyze them. And so there's actually a brewer up in the northeast of the United States that has recreated, you know, beer from Egypt because of the chemical analysis. How fun is that? So anyway, and then also another interesting thing, they found jars of bee honey because of all the properties of bee honey that have been uncovered and is still edible 3,000 years later. Wow. Isn't that amazing? So um, anyway, so just random things that you find digging stuff up out of the ground. But um, all of these things tie into this geography piece because where, when you are looking to settle down, initially just with your family, um, because remember, this is a tribal society, so you would have found a spot for your family, and then that family would have grown in the clan and the tribe around, but you're, you're looking to set up a town. What do you need to live somewhere? You need water, first of all. Not gonna survive without water. You need a way to grow food, um, so you have to have food sources and, and also forage for animals. You need something to build a house with or some way to move in. And actually, Israel is pretty low on forested areas. So most houses in Iron Age Israel and, and Second Temple Israel are made out of limestone, right? All that limestone. And then you, you want to make sure that you can be secure um, and you want to be connected, though. And these two things, they, they play in. And Jerusalem is, I'm going to use as the example. And then finally, you want to be able to worship. And again, um, you know, for worship in, the, in much of the ancient world, that was, um, you know, really so that you would survive. And of course, we read this in Deuteronomy 8 as well, but it was very present for the ancient world. Um, that, that worship was key because they knew that God, or for the pagan pagans, gods, were what kept, they made the difference between life and death. You could have everything else, but if you did not have God, um, you were not going to survive. So, so all of these things play in, and so we're going to see um, how Jerusalem really exemplifies this. And this, of course, this road is up in the area north of Bethel, north of Jerusalem, in the ter tribal territory of Ephraim. And um, that road that you see running through that beautiful valley is spring. You can see the almond tree in blossom there. That road sits atop roads that go back to the Iron Age and earlier than that. So again, people keep living in the same places and they keep walking on the same roads and now driving. So some of our connectivity, and you also see the terracing there, which is interesting. So this is a little um, really tight picture of a topographical map of Jerusalem. Now, the first thing that you'll note there is um, the two mountain names. You've got Mount Moriah 
and you've got Mount Zion. What's really interesting about this is that the names flipped. And this is something that a lot of people don't realize. In the Hebrew Bible, when it talks about Mount Zion, it's mostly talking about Mount Moriah. Now the Mount Moriah name is, is how we know it um, with Abraham, but then it came to be known as Mount Zion and that's where the temple was built. Some point um, in, uh, after the destruction of the temple during the Byzantine period, those names got, got flipped and so now it's the other hill um, it's, uh, it's the, the other hill that is now known as Mount Zion, which is creating all sorts of weird political problems in modern day Israel, because life in Israel is complicated. Um, <laughs> but, um, so, but if you look at Mount Moriah there, it is, uh, you've got the two valleys um, and they're really steep. You know, if you read maps, you can see how, how closely spaced those topographical lines are. Um, and so these are the two valleys and then the steep hill. And the top of the hill is pretty flat. So that means, and again, think, don't think the modern world with plains. Think the ancient world. Um, and then we're going to talk about why Jerusalem is important and why Jerusalem, um, the, the people have lived on Mount Moriah um, since prehistoric times. Why? Well, first of all, You've got water there. You've got the Gihon Spring, which is a good enough spring that it runs all year. So that means you've got water all year long, and that's really, really important. Um, you've got good soil um, because of the kind of limestone that's in that area. And so you're able to terrace down those hills. And then at the base where the Tyropean and Kidron meet there, going towards, um, going towards, uh, the southeast, um, that is really great fertile land. And in fact, um, they have discovered, um, and based on the biblical witness, that little part of land was where the king's gardens were. So that was the plot of land that fed the palace and the priests back in the Iron Age. Um, so you've got the good land there. Now, um, what about connectivity and security? Well, if you see the, the um, kind of big blue arrow I've got at the top there, um, just that, that just schematically notes one of the main routes in Israel, north-south route. Um, it's called the Patriarch's Highway um, or the um, Ridge Route. And this has been one of the major north-south routes in Israel in this part of the land since the Bronze Age. So you've got connectivity, but what's interesting is that Mount Moriah is actually not the tallest mountain in the area. Mount, both Mount Zion and then the Mount of Olives, which is here at the bottom, it's just to the bottom here, they are actually both higher. So you are a little village trying to get started you want to be connected so you can get to and from places if you need to. But you know if invaders come, you're probably not going to be able to fight them off. So if you are a little afraid, what do you want to be able to do? You want to get into your little hiding hole so they can't even see you. Now, I know, you know, for those of you with sort of tactical experience, you know if you're fighting a main battle, you want the high ground. 
but back in the Iron Age, you actually, your best bet was to just hide. <laughs> and so this is what the, for Jerusalem does really well. You are high enough that it's hard for your enemies to get up that hill, but you are not so high that you're obvious to, for everyone to see. So you have both security um, by being able to protect, but also security by not being easily seen. So you've got cover and, uh, and security. And the red line there is, um, it's really, again, digging is so much fun. This was one of the, this was the site of where the earliest wall was built because they only needed one wall to protect because they've got the, the height of that little hill to protect them from the other side. So that makes it good. You've only got to build one huge wall, um, which made this a great spot. And then finally, the worship piece, you've got Mount Moriah. This is the place where God brought Abraham. Um, this, this is the place of the binding of Isaac. Um, this is a place where God meets humans. So this is Jerusalem. And when you go to other areas, uh, to the other major cities around, you find very similar things. What's missing from the other places in the Hebrew Bible, though? There's one factor that's missing for settlement consideration. It's the worship piece. Why is that missing from the others? God said only worship in Jerusalem, only sacrifice in Jerusalem. We worship everywhere, but you can only sacrifice in Jerusalem. And for the Hebrew Bible, the sacrifice piece was critically important. So, um, so here we see um, how we know where things are because we look for these things. You're not going to get a town growing up in the middle of the desert where there's no water. Um, and so this helps, helps us find the actual sites where places were. Um, and again, this, these are the walls of Jerusalem. This is outside Jaffa Gate. Um, and I would walk by this every single day and it never ceased to amaze me. So these are the walls of the city. And um, what you see in this picture um, is you have literally thousands of years of walls here. So you've got some stone layers at the very bottom with then some very rudimentary stones built on that. Um, down here, um, kind of at the, the, the base layer, and even below that, um, if we dug down, um, and those go back, th those lowest layers go back to the Bronze Age and then the Iron Age, um, and then you get higher levels that go to the Second Temple period. And Second Temple stones are really easy to recognize because Herod was a great builder. He was crazy paranoid megalomaniac, but he was also really kind of brilliant. Um, but he, um, you can always tell stones that were built or that were carved and constructed during Herod's time because they're huge and they almost always have a fancy border around them. Um, so you can always easily recognize Herodian stone. But then, um, of course, the Romans destroyed that. So then above that, you've got Byzantine era, Above that, um, then after the, the Muslim conquest uh, destroyed the Byzantine era, you've got then later 
um, Mameluke and Crusader stones above that. So literally, just what looking at one piece of wall in Jerusalem, you see these layers of history. And, and you literally can touch the history of the land in all of these layers and the destruction that happened between them. And you are literally reading the Bible by touching this wall and all of all of this stuff of Hezekiah and you can and there are places where you dig down and you see the walls that you read about King Hezekiah building in he knows the Babylonians are coming and you look down and you see the walls that were constructed during that time and you read that passage in the Bible and it is the most incredible thing to my mind um, that you are literally getting to almost touch that history. Um, and of course in the Old Testament, um, you know, God's whole plan for his people was follow me and know me and I will be with you and I will protect you. And this verse is really one of the key verses um, for Old Testament Israel and Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the very south, everyone under his own vine and fig tree. And so we see there that God divided the land among the tribes as a perpetual inheritance for them so that they would be able to care for their families and that his plan, that, that he would protect them from invaders. And so that, why? So that his people could live in safety with plenty under their own vine and fig tree. In other words, you have food security and, um, and that God would be with them so that they could worship God and share his word with the world as God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. Um, it's, of course, never been that way. Why? Because they did exactly what God warned them against. They got to the land and they forgot that God had done it. Uh, how often do we all do that? <laughs> um, and so this really was the ideal. This still, I think, is part of the ideal in the land, which is why it's so complicated even today. Um, but uh, this isn't what happened, although I love this picture of this Palestinian couple harvesting their olives. Um, it's, uh, it's fun. We had a picnic near here one day and watched them harvest their olives. It was fun. So, but that's not what happened. Instead, as of course biblical history goes on, we read of all of the um, invasions. And so the way that I think is helpful to think about this is cats and mice. So um, cats were the Egyptians. Cats were the Assyrians. Cats were the Babylonians, later the Greeks under Alexander the Great, and then his uh, successors, uh, the Seleucids um, and, uh, in, in Syria and the uh, Ptolemies in Egypt. Um, you've got uh, the Phoenicians, the Hittites. Um, you've got the Romans later. Um, and Israel is a mouse. The Philistines were mice as well. I know the Philistines play really heavily in the early chapters of the Bible, but the Philistines were mice as well. Um, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, um, some of the other names that you read in the early Hebrew Bible, they were also 
mice. And um, if you're a mouse and the cats have gone away, what happens? The mice come out to play. And so what you see um, is at, which what we read in the Bible is actually, and I, I actually, I really love this when we, when, we, when we think about this. We tend, I think, to imagine the Bible as this idealized time. And that, I think, is fine, but it also makes us start feeling, we start reading it like it's fiction. And the fact of the matter is, it's not fiction, it is fact. And, um, and, and some of the things that they lived through and experienced are still going on in some way, shape, or form today. And so to understand this dynamic of cats and mice, to understand the way the land works, to understand where the land is, and all of these other empires, I think can really help us stop thinking that the Bible is just an interesting book written by dead people about things that didn't happen. And so to understand this and to teach your children and grandchildren this way is really, I think, very important to make this not just be a book of fiction. So the Israelites keep turning from God, and so these are the consequences, and they are real events in real places in real time. And so, so for example, the Israelites escape Egypt. Why do they escape Egypt? Because God is with them. But there's also historical stuff happening on the ground. Now, God is moving all these pieces, and Isaiah makes that clear. But what is happening on the ground at the time that the Israelites escape Egypt is, guess what? Egypt is struggling internally, and it is weak. And if the, mal if the cat is weak, what can the mice do? They can come out to play. And that's exactly what happens. You know, God has weakened the, the nation of Egypt, this huge empire. And so the Israelite mice can escape, and he is with them, but they escape. Um, and so they, they're able to settle in the land. But in those early years when Egypt is weak, we also read that who is Israel fighting against? The Philistines and the Amorites. Why? Because all the mice have come out to play, and they're all fighting for what? Resources, the same things that modern wars are fought for. Resources, so you read about all of these struggles and it's, it all is within this theological concept, but these are all real things that are happening on the ground. And so when we read about like um, the, the, the David and Goliath time, it's happening in this area um, between the highlands of Jerusalem and the heart of Judah, the tribal area of Judah, and then the seacoast area where the Philistines are, and it's happening in this middle. And why? Because they're all wanting a little bit more space. They're all wanting a little bit more land to grow food. And so there's this fight. Um, the, the same when you read Judges with the Amorites coming in or the Philistines again. This is all happening in real space and time because the cats are weak. And then another cat starts to get fat and happy and strong, and that's the Assyrians. And so then the Assyrians come, and you don't read about the Philistines anymore because the cats are all big and happy, and so the mice have gone back to hide. 
and then Assyria falls and the mice start fighting again. You read about Aram Damascus, you read about Syria, you read about this then happening and then also sadly the north and south southern kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah fighting. Um, and then another big empire comes the Babylonians. But you also read some fascinating geography in this as well. So um, in Ezekiel, it talks uh, part of God's word to through Ezekiel is there is a boiling pot that's about to spill and it's going to spill from the north. So imagine a big kettle of a pot of water spilling and burning everything in its path and it spills from the north. And this is about the Babylonians because guess which way they invaded? They're way over here on the map, Israel's here, but they have to come across the Fertile Crescent because they can't come due west. They have to go north and then down. So that passage is literally what is going to happen. The Babylonian army is gonna come spilling from the north and take the land. Um, or somebody asked me a question earlier in the week about Deuteronomy 2. Um, when it uh, is talking about God says to the people, you've been hanging around Mount Seir and wandering around this mountain. It's time to turn north and go. And she said she'd always read that sort of spiritually, thinking that, you know, and I mentioned last week about how we orient the map to the east. And she said, um, I always read that spiritually, but is that actually like geographical? And it is indeed geographical. Mount Seir um, is down here. Let me make sure my thing. In Edom. And where did the Israelites cross into the promised land? The city name. Jericho, right. So they've been, God is saying to the people, you are wandering around down here. It's time to get your skates on and go to the land that I've shown you. So if you want to go to Jericho, which is up here, what do you do? You turn north. It's a literal map or, you know, go this way, go north to get there. So, um, so I love um, how all of this is really taking place in real space and time in the midst of real historical events. So our cats and mice there. And really the land, you can divide the Holy Land into basically four main quadrants. And these are the main areas of entry into the Promised Land. But I want you to take a little look at this and see kind of how amazing this is because you've got major, major routes that for the ancient world Everything went through Israel. Everything. If you were going from Egypt to trade with one of the other big empires like Assyria or Babylon, guess how you went? You went through, through Israel. If you, were, if you were Babylon and you wanted to trade with any of the other Mediterranean nations, where did you have to go? Through Israel. If you are Alexander the Great and you want to conquer India, where do you have to go? Through Israel. So uh, again, why, why here? Why this place? Well, because in the end, God says to the people to take 
the word where? Spread the gospel, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? Well, you start in the middle of it and you go everywhere from here. And it spread quickly from here. So you've got these, you've got these major routes. So this is the way of the sea that goes all the way down to Egypt, comes all the way up here. There are several port cities along there. Um, and then from there you'd come across and then you'd go over the Fertile Crescent or you'd go up into Lebanon and then into modern day Turkey. The King's Highway down here um, in modern day Jordan, which by the way, if you go to Jordan, you will still basically drive the King's Highway. Um, if you're going, say, from Amman, Jordan, down to Petra, you're basically still on the King's Highway. Um, one of the main highways in Israel today is still this way of the sea. It's kind of amazing. Um, and you've got major routes that come in through the mountains here. Um, and so all of these gateways, these four quadrants with their main gateways, help us understand how the land worked. And our, our northern gateways... Um, Phoenicia and Carmel up here going towards the northwest into the Mediterranean. Up here you've got Damascus, Bashan and Hatsur. And there's, um, there's a mountain here up in the Golan that I like to take people to. It's a UN spot actually, but you go up there and you're looking down into that gateway at the road that Paul walked on to get to Damascus still today, which I think is in incredible. And so this northern um, gateway, and you can see um, some of these areas where you'd come, um, the green is lower land, so you see your easy routes there. Um, you've got the Jordan headwaters up there, which is so beautiful, and waterfalls. You've got the Hula Basin, which is lowland. It's in the rift. Um, for those of you that are birders, this is some of the best bird watching in the world, especially during the migration season, because this is the northern end of the Great Rift that goes all the way down into Africa. So you get major bird migration up here, which is incredible. You've got Hatsor, which is one of the major cities of the ancient world. Tel Hatsor is mentioned in Middle Bronze Age Egyptian uh, um, carvings. Uh, it was a really important Canaanite city that guarded one of the made roadways. It was an incredibly wealthy city because it basically taxed you if you were walking back and forth on this road. You know, they were they just put a little booth out there and collect taxes. And I love this because this is a burn layer in the brick straw that dates to the period of Joshua and the people coming into the land and burning Telhatsor in the north. You've got Caesarea Philippi. So this is a second temple and, and beyond early church history site um, as well. So named after Caesar and Herod Philip, one of Herod's many sons, who he na named all of them Herod, basically, which made Thanksgiving confusing. But um, you've got Caesarea Philippi. Who can tell me what happened to Caesarea Philippi? Who do you say that I am? And this is uh, an important gateway. And this is, this is basically a Roman city in the Holy Land. Um, and 
all of those niches in the wall there would have held various statues of various Roman gods. And Jesus says to his people, in the midst of the pagan world that we are living in and that I'm going to be sending you into to spread the gospel, you need to know who I am. And you need to be able to stand firm in that because there's all of this other chatter. And so you need to know who I am. And so, um, you know, and we see this in this place where the pagan world met the Jewish world. And it's the same for us today. These are real events in real places. This is Tel Dan with Alan Ross there on my very first trip to Israel. Um, and uh, the, these gates, which are being preserved, date back to the Bronze Age. Again, so, so this is late Bronze Age gate, time of Abraham. So you remember when Abraham goes to rescue his wayward nephew Lot? It, it's, it's very likely that he walked through these gates. Isn't that incredible? It's just amazing to think of this stuff. So till Dan, um, when we get to the, uh, the divided kingdom and Jeroboam sets false worship sites up, one in Bethel and one in Tel Dan in the very northernmost part of the country. Um, and they've discovered um, the altar that was destroyed there. Um, and you can see the horns of the altar. These are the horns of the altar. It's huge, huge, because they would have actually taken the offering up on top of it and then tied the animal, literally tied the animal to the horns of the altar so that when they cut its throat, um, it wasn't struggling so that it was a more humane death. But this is the altar at Tel Dan. It's giant, which then a totally random thing because I love, I, I love random bits of nonsense. So in the book of Leviticus, there's, this whole, there's a whole discussion about underwear for the priests. And, and uh, so I read a really, in, people get PhDs for all sorts of crazy things. But anyway, uh, so I read an interesting, a part, part of an interesting um, PhD dissertation about the whole underwear thing. And it basically boiled down to the priest having to climb up on top of these giant altars. And so there were instructions on the underwear so that people, you know, weren't, weren't seeing everything when they were standing on top of the altar. Anyway, so just random, random factoids. So more about than, than you ever thought you'd learn on a Sunday morning about priestly underwear. So, um, and this again, standing there uh, on the top of Taldan, looking into Syria and Lebanon. That view has not changed. There may be a few houses in the way that weren't there in the Iron Age, but that is the exact same view that Israelites would have had when they were there 3,000 years ago. Isn't that incredible? Paul would have seen this view. Jesus would have seen this view. You know, and that's, that's just amazing. And then one of the things that was found in secondary use, so for secondary use means that something got destroyed and it's the original recycling. Well, if you've got rocks and blocks, why go get new ones if you can just use the ones from this pile over here? So this was found in secondary use in the wall at Tel Dan. So, um, so a wall dating to the Persian period. Um, and this, this was found in it, and it is a carving um, that dates to the divided kingdom period. 
Um, and it talks about the king of Israel and the king of the house of David. Some modern scholars have said that David never existed. And then they found this. That was literally in the wall, and it was found by a grad student who was working um, on this dig at Tel Dan. And this poor grad student had been given the very fun task of counting and numbering and drawing the wall, the, the, all of the rocks that were making up this wall. And while he's doing this, he found this, that people had just been walking by, because it was, you know, kind of covered with moss and stuff. And he's like, I think this is an inscription. You know, he got his doctorate, I have no doubt, on finding this. <laughs> so, this northwest, or excuse me, the northeast area too is the Sea of Galilee. And again, this is a place where the pagan world met the Jewish world. Um, and this is where many of the disciples came from. And so you've got, in Jesus' day, you've got the Decapolis cities that were all Roman. And one of the interesting things about Rome was they had a very distinct building style. So much so that it's almost like the giant emperor of Rome, and I always tend to think of him like a giant statue, walked across the earth and everywhere his foot fell, a Roman city popped up just like treads in sneakers. And so all of these Roman cities looked very alike because it was Rome's way of saying, we own you. Um, and, uh, and these are very visible. So these Decapolis cities were Roman. But then you've got this area up here that was very, very Jewish. So you see these cultures colliding. But that, I think, is a great place for what? Evangelism. You know, where do we share the gospel? On these, in these liminal places where all these people haven't heard about Jesus. But we can tell it, and this is what those first churchgoers did, those first Christians did. They shared it with these people in the Decapolis. Um, they shared it with the Roman soldiers. They shared it with Cornelius the Centurion. And what happened? Within a hundred years, there are Christians at Hadrian's Wall in England and all the way in India, kind of to the furthest extent of the Roman Empire and a little beyond. Within a hundred years, that's incredible um, because of all of this geography and of where Israel sat. And people say to me sometimes, why did God wait so long to send Jesus? And part of that answer is because of Rome because Rome built roads and they marched across the face of the earth. And because they were across the face of the earth, Jesus comes and guess who took that gospel to most of those places? It was the Roman soldiers who had become Christian and were being sent all over the kind of known world and taking that gospel with them. Um, and so, and it, it's just, I think it's just amazing because of this geography. 
You've got Mount Arbel overlooking the sea and all those spring wildflowers. You've got the fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, which is amazing. Again, basically the same view. Oh, you've got Magdala, Migdal, Mary of Magdala from here. The place that marks the feeding of the 5,000. Not really sure on that one, but you know, it was a big picnic. It's kind of hard to remember where you picnicked, but, um, but this is the traditional site. You've got Capernaum, this incredible city. And this church, it's a terrible looking church. It looks like a spaceship about to take off. But the reason they did that is because you've got layers under that. Um, including octagonal churches. For those of you that don't know, and I'm about to finish, octagonal churches were the Byzantine way of marking. This is where Jesus did something. You know, if you go to London today, you see all the markers. You know, Queen Elizabeth slept here. Well, well, octagonal churches in the Byzantine world were the way of saying Jesus slept here. And below the octagonal church then was a house that had been expanded and expanded. And many scholars, there's always a few that disagree, think that this was the site of Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house that became a house church that eventually was made into an octagonal Byzantine church. This church sits above it. Continuity of worship. How do we know? Well, because of all of these layers of churches and those early Christians remembered and they wanted to mark where Jesus had been and what he had done. So I've got a lot more to get through. We're not going to get through it all, but um, I will press on next week and we'll look at some of the stuff down south. Um, and uh, if you've got questions, let me know. Otherwise, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.